This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.29, A Show of Mercy, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan. I'm here to drink tea and talk about Gundam, and I have plenty of tea. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and struggling with my artistic temperament this week. She's distempered. Melancholic. Phlegmatic. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 268 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Ellis R. and Salazar R., and to returning patrons, Zach S. and Eric A. Welcome back! If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week, we are discussing Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 28, The Jupiteris Infiltration, or Jupiterisu Senyu, as well as our research on physical deception and women as spies. But first, we have a message from the Ayug Broadcasting Channel. You're listening to ABC, the AUG Broadcasting Channel. Hello, new recruit, and welcome to your AUG Automated Orientation Seminar, provided by HRDimation, a division of Anaheim Automatics. HRDimation, where our motto is, you don't need an HR department, it's fine. This automated orientation seminar is equipped with a touch-tone interface to provide you with a custom-tailored orientation experience designed to fit your unique needs as a valued member of AUG. Please press 1 now if you are a Federation officer fed up with the tyrannical behavior of the Titans. Press 2 if you are a former Titans officer disillusioned by your experiences. Press 3 if you are a freelance journalist. Press 4 if you are an experienced soldier and a new father who finds the comforting regularity of the military preferable to the uncertain chaos of family life. Press 5 if you are a disgraced former hero of the Principality of Xeon living under an assumed name in the vain hope that you can escape the gravity of your own past. Press 6 if you are a teenage runaway who believes in the cause of a Great. Now we just have a few more questions to get to know you. First, do you have a girl's name or a man's name? You have selected girl's name. Are you an orphan? Press 1 for yes, 2 for uncertain, and 3 for not yet. You have selected uncertain if my parents are alive. Good luck, kid. Next, do you sometimes feel pressure coming from enemy ships or mobile suits? Press 1 for yes. You have selected yes. Welcome aboard Promising New Asset. Being a member of AU can be challenging, but it can also be a lot of fun. Now that you've enlisted, there's no backing out, so it's up to you to make the most of your time here. You may be uncomfortable with some aspects of life aboard an AU warship, 
So remember to repeat this mantra. That's just how things are in the military. Let's go over some quick do's and don'ts. Do show up on time for missions and mission briefings. Don't get distracted by childhood toys or your civilian beauty routine. Do stay in your lane. Don't act like an intelligence officer when you're just a pilot. Do report any strange feelings to your commanding officer, but don't offer any opinions. Unlike the despotic hierarchy of the Titans, here at AUG we have an efficient and equitable two-track dispute resolution process. If there's a conflict between you and another soldier around the same age and rank, what we here call recreation, you'll be given as much space and time as you need to sort things out yourselves. Do deal with your issues. Don't make a big deal about it. In the unlikely event of a conflict between yourself and a financial backer or officer of significantly higher or lower rank, AUG policies are designed to ensure the swift resolution of the dispute in order to maximize the harmonious operation of your unit for the good of everyone involved. Consistent with those policies, if a conflict does arise, it will be resolved in favor of the more senior officer and a correction will be administered to the more junior officer immediately. Do apologize for your impertinence. Don't bother explaining. Just repeat your mantra, that's just how things are in the military. You might be wondering, will I, as a girl, face any special challenges as a member of AUG? Isn't it true that the military is a man's world? The answer is, of course not. Gender is irrelevant in the military, so you can resume being a girl once the war is over. Besides, there are lots of roles on any warship that are uniquely suited to your feminine nature. Whether you're delivering meals or looking after rambunctious children, you'll be contributing to the smooth operation of the ship. Add a smile, and everywhere you go, you'll be raising morale, too. That concludes your introduction module of this HR Automation Automated Orientation Seminar. You can now listen to additional modules in any order you like. Press 1 for It's Just a Little Harmless Flirting, How You Can Benefit From and Contribute to AUG's Fun and Permissive Office Culture. Press 2 for An Unattended Mobile Suit or Your Opportunity for Advancement. Press 3 for Guns Out, Guns Out, A Guide to AUG's Wartime Uniform Policy. Press 4 for a list of approved sunglasses vendors. Press 5 for Children Are Our Future. AUG's policy on employing minors, or press 6 for more options. And now the recap for the Jupitris infiltration. Bright and Beckoner finally confront Quattro. There have been rumors ever since he returned from Earth without Blex. What happened? Quattro confirms that Blex is gone, but insists they have no time to mourn. Titan's forces are massing near side two, and they must focus on the task at hand. In the hangar, the recovered Galgoog is being retrofit, repaired with Nemo parts so that Rekua can fly it. It won't be any use in combat, but it will give her a pretense to sneak aboard the Jupitris and gather intelligence. Camille goes looking for her and meets Fa along the way. The two of them head to the mess hall, where Rekawa is giving Quattro's adoptees some juice after a tour of the ship. Angry, Camille asks, 
why would she volunteer for such a dangerous mission, especially after her last spying attempt went so disastrously in Jaburo? I thought you were more grown up than this. This is the mission, Rekawa insists calmly, exchanging a look with Fa, who seems to understand, and tells Camille he needs to let it go, that Rekawa has clearly made up her mind, and there's no sense picking a fight about it. Afterwards, Fa visits Rekawa's room, an odd oasis filled with potted plants and trellised vines growing over the walls and across the ceiling. They talk about the Jaburo mission, and Rekawa wonders if she was too hard on Camille. No, Fa sighs. He tends to overlook others' feelings. He doesn't see that you're trying to redeem yourself. Rekawa smiles and thanks Fa for understanding. Later, Fa tries to explain all this to Camille, but he refuses to understand why Rekawa insists on doing the mission herself. It seems to him that she's behaving emotionally, like a young girl. In a huff, Fa yells, Then I guess I'm a child too, and storms out. On the Dogo skier, Soroko fills Sarah in on his plan to take over a side two colony and use it as a jumping off point for access to Earth. With a soft expression on his face, he puts a hand to her cheek and talks about walking on Earth with her, and Sarah seems immediately struck by this show of affection. He is leaving for the Jupitris, but she will remain on the Dogos gear to cover him, and she is filled with a desire to help and protect Paptimos-sama. The Gelgoog is finally ready, and Rekoa takes off with one change of plan. Camille is going along as backup. He won't board the Jupitris, but he will be nearby in the Zeta Gundam, just in case. When Fa hears about this, she storms onto the bridge, berating her commanding officers. Don't they understand Rekoa's feelings? But Quattro and Bright contend that Rekoa's pride and desire to prove herself is irrelevant, even a luxury, and one they can ill afford in wartime. Deflated, Fa excuses herself. Bright finds her later, hanging around the hangar, and orders her to sortie and join Camille in providing backup. The crew of the Dogos gear notice the Galgoog, although at a distance, they can only tell that it is a mobile suit. Concerned that it may be following Sirocco and the Jupitris, Sarah takes off after it. While Rekawa inspects the exterior of the Jupitris, marveling at the size of the warship, Camille waits, shielded behind a small asteroid. When she lands, Rekawa attempts to pass herself off as a hobbyist. Out in her refurbished, original Galgoog, she misjudged the power consumption and ran out of juice before she could get home. The crew seem to accept her story, and after she rebuffs a handsy officer, they lead her to a separate room to wait while her mobile suit is recharged. It is simple enough for her to lose her escort and find her way back to the hangar, carefully examining the Titan's supplies, especially the newest mobile suits. In the meantime, Sarah spots Camille, and a dogfight begins. Sarah is consumed with protecting Sirocco and determined to destroy the Zeta. Camille is fighting for his life. Rekoa overhears Sirocco and an officer discussing whether or not Axis will ally with the Titans, and tries to sneak away but is spotted. When she claims to have gotten lost, the crew don't seem to believe her. Sirocco puts a hand to her cheek, just as he did with Sarah, but Rekoa swats him away and he slaps her. He asks her for her name and division, and although she gives her real name, she continues to insist that she's from side two. Things look bad for Rekoa, but at that moment a call comes in. The mobile suit dogfight has been spotted. As he leaves for the bridge, Sirocco wishes Rekoa a safe journey. Back in space, Fa arrives, and Camille gets some much-needed backup. Sirocco can feel the pressure of the fight, and now that it is two-on-one, he plans to send the Palace Athene to help Sarah, until he gets a flash of her feelings. She wants to go it alone, so the Jupitris and its mobile suits remain on standby. Under the pretense of watching the fight, Rekoa gets into a control room. 
The soldier on duty flirts with her, and while he's distracted, she knocks him out and opens a hatch so that she can leave. The bridge crew detect the open hatch and move to stop her, but Soroko orders them to let her go. Rekua joins the fight, although the Gelgoog can't be much help. While Sarah pursues Fa, Camille is able to sneak up behind her and manages to cut off most of one of her mobile suit's legs. With her mobile suit badly damaged, Sarah runs to the Jupitress. On the verge of tears, Sarah apologizes to Soroko for failing to destroy the Zeta Gundam, but he pulls her into an embrace, reassuring her that she's doing even better than expected, and for now she should rest. Rekua, Camille, and Fa head back to the Argama. On their way, Camille thanks Fa for saving him, and she thanks him for the same. For now, at least, they are on good terms. Once back, Rekua sketches out what she remembers of the Jupitress and its mobile suit complement. However, one of her sketches is incomplete. She cannot seem to fill in the area at the center. She tells Bright she can't remember it, because of how desperate she was at the time. But when she looks, she can see Sirocco in the blank space. Trying to fill it in makes her head ache. She starts to sweat and puts a hand to her eyes before giving up. Afterwards, she wonders why she didn't tell Bright about Sirocco. This is the talkback for episode 28 of Zeta Gundam. Yeah. The Jupitress Infiltration. Ooh. Or Jupitrisu Senyu. I am so glad that word was in the title because they kept saying it and I was trying to look it up and Sen-yu. I couldn't find it. Because they keep translating it as uh, like sneak in. Mm-hmm. And it's not what comes up when you look up sneak mm-hmm. in in Japanese. Yeah. New is to enter. It's the same kanji as hairu. I thought there were a lot of interesting translation notes in this episode, but before we get to any of that, Nina, I know you have some spleen to vent. Ugh, so much. Too much. <laughs> it's kind of too big. It was a frustrating episode, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> I don't even know how to begin. <laughs> well, I'll start then. This is an episode that has a lot to say about gender. Oh, you're going straight for the jugular. Okay. <laughs> okay, so frustration one is that I don't entirely get what the show is trying to say about gender in this episode. I feel like you could have left the gender discussion out of it completely and just talked about people's feelings, personality, and character, and it would have made complete sense. With the gender stuff added, suddenly I am at sea. I don't (laughs) get what they're trying to say. I am with you on that. Because In this episode, I see a lot of a theme that Zeta is usually pretty good at dealing with, which is adulthood versus childhood. There's a lot of that there, but then it's also got all this gender stuff mixed in, and the gender stuff is really poorly developed and kind of goes in different directions. I'm not sure that they knew what they were saying. At the beginning, before they bring gender into it, it all seemed to me very interesting and nicely handled. We have Rekoa going on this mission... We have this beautiful moment between her and Fa, right? Where Camille is trying to talk her out of it and you should take better care of yourself. And Reko and Fa look each other in the eye and Fa understands. Reko has made her decision. You need to leave it be. You can't keep picking fights over this stuff. Later, Fa goes to talk to Reko privately and Fa didn't know a whole lot about what happened in Jaburo. She talks to Reko a bit about it. 
she comes to further understand not just that Rekawa has made a decision to do this mission, but that in a way, Rekawa wants to recover her pride from having failed so badly at Jaburo. And in the show, we haven't really seen people treating Rekawa differently since Jaburo. We haven't seen evidence that her failure there has hurt her standing in Ayug, but we don't necessarily need to see that to be able to assume it. At least to some degree, Rekawa feels burdened by the stain of that failure. Very understandable. The vibe I get from Rekawa is that she is very proud. She likes to be self-sufficient. You know, she volunteers on these solo missions partially because she likes to do things for herself. And because, as they say in the episode, she's not a particularly good pilot as a pilot. Like, if it comes down to just dogfighting and quattro stuff, she's not that good. Right. But she can do this sort of thing. And it's unusual. She hasn't been trained for it. But she keeps her cool pretty well. She handles things. Then Camille reconciles himself to this after he and Fa argue some more in an argument that gets a little physical. She, like, physically tries to block him and he physically shoves her out of the way. (laughs) And then there's kind of an awkward interaction where she's floating through space towards the ground and Camille like jumps to catch her so that she doesn't gently knock into the ground. Yeah, and this is where we get the first sort of gender thing. And this part I sort of understood, but it made me angry. Uh, Fa insists to Camille again. She feels she needs to do this herself. Uh, Camille is like, see that part I don't understand. She's behaving emotionally like a young girl. How is Rekoa's focus on her pride and on independence any different from any man on that ship? (laughs) Camille especially, but, you know, several other men that we've seen go into fights specifically thinking of their past failures, thinking of redemption, wanting personal glory. I'm not saying it's not driven by emotion, but the implication that that emotion is purely feminine is laughable. Friends, Romans, podcast listeners, I come to bury Camille, not to praise him. However, I don't read that interaction in quite the same terms that you do. Camille does use the gendered language. He does say a young girl. He says shoujo. But I see this within the lens of the conversation that they were having in the previous scene between Fa, Rekoa, and Camille, where they keep telling Camille, don't behave like a child. And I think Camille says to Rekoa, you're behaving like a child. <laughs> and so I saw this as connecting again to that theme of adulthood versus childhood, where as an adult, you're supposed to not be driven by emotions. You're supposed to be in control of your emotions. Camille is saying she's acting like a little girl. But the emphasis here is not on girl, but on little. Camille is saying she's acting like a child or teenager. Does Rekua seem impetuous to you? Does she seem out of control in the throes (laughs) of her feelings? Not really, no. (laughs) No, she doesn't. She is being driven by her feelings here, and that's what Fa is telling Camille. Can't you respect Rekua's feelings? They're the reason she's doing this. They're the reason she has to do it alone. Well, but there's alone and alone, right? Because Rekoa doesn't mind having backup, but she has to infiltrate the ship alone. Although Fa really objects to sending Camille as backup. Fa thinks that would ruin it for Rekoa. Which I thought was interesting. 
Fa storms onto the bridge and basically starts like berating <laughs> all of these people who are in command. Um, I do love seeing her yell at all of her commanders seemingly uh, without fear of reprisal. <laughs> um, Here she is behaving impetuously in the throes of passion. Sure. But this is Fa, not Rekua, and she's young. But she brings up Rekua's like feelings as a woman. And I just don't see how that's re- like, what does that mean? And how is that relevant? And why does Fa think it matters? I mean, the only thing I can think of is that there's an undercurrent or a sense among the women on the crew of needing to prove themselves extra, needing to prove themselves even more. I am nodding vigorously over <laughs> here. I think that's got to be it. Fa's objection is to them sending Camille. Right, because if you feel like you have to send a man, or not even a man, this young boy, to babysit her on her mission... Or anybody. The feeling that Rekua, for the sake of her pride to prove herself, has to do it alone, is that feeling that the women have to work twice as hard just to be considered on the same level. And remember the way this scene is set up. The construction of this scene. Fa bursts onto the bridge... How many women are on the bridge of the Argama? None! And not only are there no women on the bridge crew of the Argama, at this particular moment when Fa bursts in, who else is on the Argama? All of the leadership of Ayug right now, who are... <laughs> Bright, Beckner, and Quattro. They are not only all men, they are all men of approximately the same age with roughly the same build. And when Fa tries to make this argument to them... Quattro tells her, gender is irrelevant in the military. But if gender were truly irrelevant, maybe there would be some women in Ayug's leadership. Maybe there would be more than three women on the whole Argama. Or four. Isn't Ponytail around somewhere? Oh, I was counting her, but I think Emma's on the radish right now. Oh, you're right. So it's Rekua, Fa, and Anna Hannah, which is Ponytail's actual name. Oh, okay. And we're not going to count the children. (laughs) I think one of them is a girl. It's hard to tell. Well, they have not been named or given any lines yet, but they have been entrusted to the care of the women. Not yet, actually. Not really. Except for Rekua giving the tour. Well, and when they run off, it's Fa who goes after them. And if gender were truly irrelevant, then when Fa says she may be a soldier, but she's a woman first, why would Bright say, we can't think like that in wartime? Right. Like, so clearly it is relevant. Also, like, what the cuss <laughs> does Fa mean? What does Bright mean? I hate when this show talks about gender. I hate it so much. And then what does Quattro mean in the next scene when he and Beckner are talking and Quattro's like, oh, you know, she's right. Girls will be girls. Girls are girls. What does that mean? And he doesn't even say women are women. He says girls are girls. Yeah. I think the show might actually want us to think that Quattro's wrong. And I don't have a lot of evidence for that because unfortunately the show didn't give us a very clear picture of what it was trying to say in this episode vis-a-vis gender. But right after Quattro says that, the second after Quattro says girls will be girls, and remember he's being very specific, he's talking about girl children. It's a very quick cut into the two actual children running, like playing on the ship as Fa stands around thinking about her duties and then gets orders from Bright, right? Quattro is saying girls are girls, but clearly we have an example for what 
a girl is. We have an example of what a child is. And it's not all of these people who keep being called children. And I wouldn't put so much weight on that specific bit of cinematography, if not for the fact that in that first scene between Rekoa, Camille, and Fa, when they're talking about what it means to be a child, what it means to be an adult, Camille is distracted from that conversation by the children playing. The children are being used as a contrast to draw our attention away from these debates. What also frustrates me is that we have Camille, and he's not arguing that the mission is irrelevant. He's not arguing that no one should go. He just doesn't want Rekoa to go. He doesn't want Rekoa to go alone. Mm, I felt like his going as backup was a compromise, not his ideal solution. (laughs) I thought he didn't want her to go at all. I do agree it's a compromise. I don't think he wants her going into the Jupitress alone. My point is less that and more that, like, he is being a little childish. He's being kind of selfish. Rekko is my favorite, and I don't want her going into danger. <laughs> yeah, he is being a little childish. By the definition of childish that the show is putting forward, everyone here is being childish. And that's maybe kind of the point. It's certainly been a point that Gundam has made in the past that this idea of adulthood that adults have created for themselves is basically a complicated lie. I mean, the people who I perceive as behaving as adults are still driven by their feelings. They just act calm while they do it. (laughs) There's a sense that they have considered things, but it's not as if you can ever take emotion fully out of the equation. But they often tell a lie to themselves about the rationality of their decisions. But I don't think Rekua does in this case, because she admits to Fa. When Fa's like, oh, so you want to, like, redeem yourself. Mm -hmm. She's like, thank you for understanding, Fa. Well, everyone here is behaving a bit like children, just children in possession of weapons of war. So this is not what he says to Fa, but it is possible that Bright hears her and kind of understands, and that that's why he sends Fa as well. Because it does change the dynamics a little bit if the people sent to be your backup are not just men, but is like a mixed group. Uh, he tells Fa that he's sending her because, like, maybe you will take this all more seriously. And she's sassy. She's, like, going through something. Oh, yeah. She she calls him high-handed in the translation. Um, but the word she uses doesn't just mean high-handed. She says obo, which means tyrannical, despotic, violent. And she fires off some very uh, impertinent-feeling salutes. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to behave correctly and do what you tell me, but I'm going to do it with a really bad attitude. (laughs) Feels very Camille. And, you know, when Fa first shows up, Camille is like, oh God, what's Fa doing here? But they do save each other. And they both admit that after the fight, which is very nice. It's like, oh, you are capable of being decent to each other. How nice. Well, the last scene of the show has... In the background, the two of them getting off of an elevator together and then drifting off down a hallway together, not fighting. I believe Camille takes Fa's hand before they drift off. I love that scene because in the foreground, we have Rekua wondering like, gosh, why didn't I tell Bright about Sirocco? That's so weird. And, you know, fretting. And then just in the background, we have Camille and Fa holding hands, drifting through space. The other thing that makes me call Camille's motives into question is that when he tries to talk about Rekko's mission with Astanaji, Astanaji is like, 
kid, you're biting off more than you can chew. Like <laughs> one woman at a time. Fa is the girl for you. Oh, see, I didn't think Asanaji was saying one woman at a time. I thought Asanaji was saying like, you can't handle an adult woman. I mean that too. <laughs> but I also got the impression he was saying like, how many women are you trying to <laughs> trying to flirt with at one time? Because Camille may not be willing to admit it to himself, but he's had a crush on Rekua since forever. Yeah, ever since she was fussing over him like a mother figure. We get some more of that Rekua nurturing thing from her room. At least I think so. The whole plant mom aesthetic and all of these shots of her tending to the plants or like stroking a leaf feels very nurturing energy. Well, and the fact that she's looking after the the little kids. But yeah, I, uh, I think Astonaji is very astute that Camille's interest is not purely concern for Rekoa's welfare. It is a concern for Rekoa's welfare, but his motivations are suspect. If he wouldn't be making as big of a stink about, say, Appley going and doing it by himself, then... We'll never know, will we? We know. Oh, we know. <laughs> No, it's not that I think she can't do it because she's a woman. It's that I don't want her to go because I'll miss her if she's gone. Because I love her. Or, you know, whatever. I don't know what love is. I'm a 17-year-old from a broken home. <laughs> well, it's not even that. It's that we know that to Camille, fundamentally, women aren't supposed to be at war. That it, like, feels wrong to him for them to be fighting in the war, period. I'd like to think he's getting over that, but... This episode is kind of a mixed bag in that regard. Gundam and gender is just a mixed bag. Gender is a mixed bag. <laughs> Rekoa does pretty darn well on her own. Yeah, right up until she runs into Sirocco. And then he chooses to let her go, more or less. Which, boy, doesn't that feel ominous. It does. Well... Well, and what he says about her. We'll talk about Sirocco later. Yeah. But I suppose my point is, she is constantly underestimated and is able to turn that to her advantage repeatedly. It seems like a lot of the reason she's so underestimated by the crew of the Jupitress is because of her gender. They keep trying to flirt with her and then get punched out. <laughs> or killed. I think that operator is dead. I would need to watch that scene in slow motion, but... I just, I don't know how you render somebody that totally out by hitting them in the front of the throat without killing them. You know, another woman who wanted to go it alone this episode. Sarah. Yup. That really feels like the only link between the two halves of this story. So I feel like the big connection here, we can really distill it down to two scenes in which Sirocco does almost exactly the same thing, but with very different results. He's talking to Sarah, and he puts a hand to her cheek, which feels affectionate, intimate, and threatening all at once. This is Sroko's power move. It's so domineering, the way he does it. And he did a similar thing to her in a previous episode, except that he used that riding crop to do it. And when he does it to Sarah, she is over the moon. There's a little flicker in her facial expression, which I think is meant to convey the, like, fear first. But then it reads as affection for her, 
Uh, and we get the impression that she doesn't get much of that and never did. And so she's like immediately completely bonded to <laughs> Soroko. She calls him Paptimus Sama, which is not his rank. That's just uh, it's an honorific, but it's like a step above San. After he leaves her, she touches the spot where he touched her. She like puts her hand to her face. She's played in a way that makes her seem obsessed, wholly devoted to him. I found it very interesting that Soroko tells Sarah he's hoping for a revival of Earth, which is pretty much the opposite of what he told Moar and Jared. He's a chameleon. After all, he's not interested in his own ambitions. It's all about furthering the ambitions of these women, right? And then with Rekoa, we get the same hand to the face. We see a similar sort of flicker in her animation, which to me read like shaking with fear Mm -hmm. or anger or both. And she swats his hand away. uh, And he responds to that by slapping her very hard. Although once she tells him what colony she's from, he's like, oh, okay, fine, whatever. Rekoa is not nearly vulnerable enough for that to work. See, you say it didn't work, but at the end of the episode... Soroko is in her head, both figuratively and kind of seems like literally. So I say it didn't work because it did not inspire devotion. She didn't fall for him immediately. But he's been working on Sarah for a long time. This is perhaps lazy, but I assume her inability to draw him is just new type stuff. That he Mm. did some like new type be mind wipe on her (laughs) before letting her go. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we already know he's ridiculously powerful. He's got that new type aura that exceeds all other new type auras. Well, why do you assume that he hasn't done some kind of new type thing on Sarah? Oh, I don't. I assume that's part of what he did also. But I think the combination of, uh, like, we don't know much about Sarah's background or upbringing. If she is from a new type lab, our glimpses of Four and of uh, Rosamia seem to indicate that it does not turn out well-adjusted people. It does not seem like a place where affection is much given. And so you're this young woman who wants to prove herself and prove that she's valuable, who has no parents or intimate connections of any kind, being given this sort of like intoxicating cocktail of approval and physical affection. Well, and when he's talking to her, it's like everything is about her. Like she's the most important person. Like, that's what he's doing when he talks about, oh, I'm going to conquer this colony, but the reason I'm doing it is so that I can go on a walk with you. And it's what he's doing when he lets her fight alone. He can tell what she wants, and he's giving it to her. And when she comes back, on the verge of tears, apologizing for her failure, he tells her she did great, she's doing even better than he expected, she shouldn't worry, she should go rest... He pulls her into a hug. He sort of nuzzles her face. Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a lot. <laughs> and we have every reason to think that Soroko probably tried to do the same thing to Moar, mm-hmm. but was not successful. No. Moar, from the very beginning, seemed more skeptical of him, even before she fell for Jared. She did. I wonder, though, if it doesn't have something to do with ambition. That's something that Soroko specifically called out himself, Mm -hmm. focusing on women's ambitions and how he could help the women around him reach their ambitions was always his promise. That was the carrot. 
Rekawa's desire to prove herself might make her vulnerable to him in a way that Moauer wasn't. Eh, I don't think that Rekawa is ambitious, though. I don't feel as though her desire to prove herself has anything to do with desiring advancement. I suppose I think of the desire to prove herself as an ambition unto itself. I mean, she might be vulnerable for the simple fact that she was alone and isolated, surrounded by enemy soldiers and terrified. Do you think that would make a person feel vulnerable? Because honestly, Rekoa feels like one of the most even-keeled, emotionally mature people in the entire show. (laughs) And one of the least self-involved. But I don't think there's any doubt that he did some kind of thing to Rekoa's mind with his new type powers. Because when she sees him on the page, when she's looking at it, and there's that gap, and she can't draw whatever is standing there, who's probably Sirocco, but she sees him and he's got that glow. He's outlined in that blue glow, the same way that Four was when she was calling the Psycho Gundam to her. I enjoyed the brief glimpses we get of her private life. Her room stuffed with plants. Yeah. Plants on every surface. Total plant mom growing up the walls, over the ceiling. And she's sort of like taking care of them before she leaves. You probably didn't notice this, but in Rekua's room, when Fa goes in to talk to her, there is a subtle background noise that sounds like a water filter or a water pump going. I did not notice. That's cool. Uh, And her very 80s ginormous bright blue blazer. Love it. It's great, is what I'm saying. Fashion icon. So you jumped straight to the the like intense part of the episode. I also wanted to mention the bit at the beginning where Bright finally confronts Quattro about the fact that Blex did not come back with him. And all Quattro says is, yeah, we lost him. He's gone. Time to get back to business. Yeah, he's like, oh, but we don't have, we don't have time to mourn. We got to just keep pushing on. And everyone just accepts this. Everyone's just like, all right, shrug. I guess so. Nobody's like, wait, weren't you his bodyguard? What happened? Yeah. No discussion of succession or what they're going to do now. Who's in charge? Who gets to decide that? Though it never did feel all that much like Blex was the hands-on kind of commander. He seemed very much like their front man in dealing with Earth politics. And maybe in dealing with the secret board of shadowy figures. Wong Lee, Melanie Hugh Carbine, and others. So we have a kind of triumvirate, at least for the moment. Quattro, Bright, and Beckner all independently working towards the same goals. At least until this side two mission is over. God. Quattro is the one who chooses to bring a couple of kids aboard. And yet it is one of the mere handful of women crew members who wind up looking after them. Yeah, if Rekoa is busy handling the kids, who's going to bring Bright his lunch? Yeah, watching this episode triggered like a cascade of really horrible feelings for me. Um, Not all on its own. It was very much a final straw kind of moment. But it gets exhausting as a woman watching various media and having to constantly ignore, downplay, or force yourself to not be bothered by (laughs) the like constant casually harmful messaging (laughs) that's in basically everything. (laughs) I started reading the first volume of Ecole du Ciel, and there's a scene where the main character and her best friend have been training, 
and the best friend is remarking like, oh, your hips have slimmed down and your thighs have slimmed down. Like, you're actually taking your work seriously now. Like, her thinness becomes a proxy for the fact that she's actually working hard where before she wasn't. And I could have chucked <laughs> the comic across the room. I was... <sighs> <sighs> So when I said in the Q&A that I would really like to see a Gundam with a female main character <laughs> or some, like, good <laughs> gender dissection, <laughs> this is what I mean. Part of what makes the disjointed, aimless ramblings about gender in this episode so frustrating is that Zeta has women writers on its staff. There's like three or four women writing episodes for Zeta. They're almost 50% of the writing staff. Well, the 80s were kind of a difficult time for women in the workforce trying to like navigate what does it mean to be a woman? Because that was changing. Is gender relevant and like an essential part of your identity or is it irrelevant? If it's irrelevant, does that mean everyone is supposed to act like a man? I think those were probably issues that were very confusing for those women too and maybe it's just meant to be confusing maybe it's merely meant to reflect that rather than actually commenting on it in a statement of any kind it's not saying here is all this discussion around gender and here's what we think of it it's just like hey here is all this discussion around gender that we think is still going to be relevant and happening even in the distant future yeah and maybe that's it that's one of the great frustrations, but also the great joys of analyzing Gundam. You never really know when Gundam is making a commentary, and it's always hard to tell what they're saying. And after all, as we remember from Tomino's panel, often the things in Gundam are supposed to be repulsive. Like you see all of these adults, and you're not supposed to want to be that. You're not supposed to like or admire any of them. Today, looking back on the making of Zeta and Double Zeta, Char's Counterattack, this whole period, Tobino describes it as one of the like, lowest, worst points in his life, when his mental state was about as bad as it would ever get. This is a dark, grim, awful world that's being depicted. It is a world where nobody ever learns anything. I suppose I would just like to experience some media where, like, sure, lay out everything that's wrong, but then imagine something better. Imagine what things look like when those problems are fixed. Imagine solutions, or at least improvements. <laughs> there is something distinctly depressing about science fiction with all the same problems that we're experiencing right now. But you know they've got 35 more years to get around to imagining solutions. This week, we researched physical deception and women as spies. Besides Rekawa's spycraft and whatever psychic new-type counterintelligence tricks Soroko pulled, there are two examples in this episode of what is sometimes called physical deception. The first is the pseudo-Gelgoog that Astanaji's engineering team mocks up by combining the armored shell and cockpit salvaged from the Guazin battleship of two episodes prior with the internals of a spare Nemo. This deception is part of her cover story as a civilian out flying a vintage mobile suit for pleasure, and it fools the crew of the Jupitress, who would, 
we can assume, have been much more suspicious had Rekoa arrived in an undisguised Ayuk mobile suit like the Nemo. The second bit of physical deception appears at the end of the episode when Camille inflates a dummy asteroid from a module on the Zeta Gundam's wrist. The victorious but damaged Ayuk mobile suits retreat behind this asteroid, and it probably acts as a blind to make it more difficult for hostile observers to spot them. In a general sense, these are both dummies, designed to be real enough to pass a certain amount of inspection. Physical deception, in general, has a long history in warfare. Depending on how persnickety you get with your definitions, you can find it in the folk legend about the death of medieval Castilian warlord El Cid, the one that claims that following his death during a siege, his wife ordered his body dressed in his armor and mounted on his horse for one final charge, so that, deceived into thinking the legendary warrior was still alive, his troops would be inspired and his enemies terrified. You can find it in Caesar's victory over the Gallic chief Vercingetorix. The Gauls faced the Romans across a river, and wherever the Romans moved, the Gauls shadowed them. Trying to cross the river, with the enemy waiting to cut his exhausted Romans apart as soon as they reached the other side, would have been suicide, so the Roman general divided his forces, sending one detachment on a secret flanking maneuver, and disguising their departure by reorganizing his remaining legions to look like a bigger force than they truly were. You can go back to some of the oldest stories in our written tradition, and find it in the Myrmidon warrior Patroclus, who dons his young friend Achilles' famous armor, rallying the Greeks and terrifying the Trojans, who all believe that unconquerable Achilles himself has returned to the fight. But the use of dummies and disguised vehicles came into its own in the wars of the modern period, when intelligence, reconnaissance, and espionage grew to play a larger role than ever before in the outcome of battles, and of wars. From the American Revolutionary War, when troops under Colonel William Washington carved a log to look vaguely like a cannon in order to intimidate some enemy troops into surrendering, until today, decoys, dummies, and disguises have decided crucial battles time and time again. But for inflatable dummies and vehicles dressed up to look like something else, the real turning point was in World War II. You may already be familiar with the story of Operations Bodyguard, Fortitude, and Quicksilver. These were the comprehensive deception plans conducted by Allied intelligence based in Britain in order to draw German attention away from the beaches of Normandy before the D-Day invasion. An illusory army was created for this purpose. But while some dummy vehicles, mostly landing craft, were deployed to help sell the gambit, in truth, physical deception played only a minuscule role compared to simulated radioactivity and the work of double agents. Physical deception got a lot more dramatic after the Normandy landings, when the American 23rd Headquarters Special Troops arrived in continental Europe. This was a special unit, built around a corps of combat engineers originally assembled for camouflage operations but augmented by the finest radio operators gathered from dozens of different units throughout the American army, and an entirely new kind of soldier, sonic warfare specialists. A disproportionate number of the soldiers in the 23rd headquarters were young artists, painters, sculptors, illustrators, set designers, theater and film directors, even fashion designers, many of them recruited directly off of art school campuses in New York and Philadelphia. From the D-Day landings until the end of the war, the 23rd headquarters raced around Europe from one crucial position to the next, plugging gaps that opened up in the Allied lines. But they weren't a combat unit, and they only ever once fired their weapons in anger. 
What they were was a cadre of just around 1,000 soldiers who could make themselves look, to German intelligence, like 30,000. They worked like this. They would be assigned a real army division, infantry or armored, to impersonate, and then they would race to a lightly defended or undefended position close to enemy lines. There, the three components of their unit would go into action. The radio operators would start sending and receiving fake radio transmissions that were precisely calculated to mimic the ordinary radio chatter of the real unit they were impersonating. Not just a real unit, mind you, but the real unit. They studied the habits of individual radio and telegraph operators. They studied how often a particular unit sent or received messages. And they had scripts prepared for all of this. The sonic warfare teams would aim 500-pound speakers mounted on the backs of half-tracks and capable of broadcasting sounds up to 15 miles, and they would play recordings of real army unit activity. These sounds, sergeants cursing, tanks struggling in the mud, tanks in the woods, trucks on duckboards, soldiers assembling bridges, and so on and so on, had all been recorded months earlier at an army proving ground, and then mixed together in one of the very first applications of multi-track mixing. And then, finally, the camoufleurs, all those artists, set designers, carpenters, and so on, would set the stage. Using inflatable rubber dummies to replicate tanks, trucks, artillery pieces, and more, with bulldozers to make realistic tank tracks, and truckloads of debris, like spent artillery shells, to really sell the illusion, they could make it look, from the air, as though a whole division was encamped in otherwise empty land. These inflatable vehicles do seem to be the earliest predecessors to Camille's inflatable asteroid. They took a lot more time and work to deploy, of course, but the soldiers of the 23rd headquarters were using 1940s air compressors if they were lucky, bicycle pumps, and their own lungs if they were not, while Camille has got future technology to inflate his. Inflatable dummies today, whether they're made by big companies like Saab, or as a sideline for the same companies that make bouncy castles, may not be quite as easy and quick to use as they are in the universal century, but they're definitely getting there, and they've gotten a lot more sophisticated. The most advanced dummies don't just look like the vehicles they're supposed to mimic. They can replicate the correct infrared and radar signatures as well. They've gotten so easy and quick to deploy, and so small, that you can actually pack an inflatable tank dummy inside of the real tank, and then just throw it out the back and set it to inflate as you drive away, leaving the dummy behind to disguise your presence. But back to World War II and the 23rd headquarters. Their greatest success came, appropriately enough, with a neat parallel to Caesar's victory over Vercingetorix roughly two millennia prior. As Allied forces prepared to cross the heavily defended Rhine River, the 23rd headquarters was sent along with the real units. But, at a carefully chosen moment, the 23rd split off from the assault force. At the same moment, the real radio operators went silent, and the 23rd's mimics came online. Broadcasting their presence, the 23rd headquarters traveled upriver, drawing the eyes and attention of the German defenders, while the real divisions crossed further down, meeting almost no resistance, almost as if all the German defenders were looking somewhere else. But if you want an even more dramatic tale of just how effective physical deception on its own can be, and a predecessor for Rekua's Nemo dressed up like a Gelgoog trick, you have to look earlier in the war, to the Second Battle of El Alamein in North Africa and Operation Bertram. 
The North Africa campaign was a back-and-forth slugfest between Italian and German troops operating from what is now Libya, but was then the Italian colony Cyrenaica, and British forces, mostly Commonwealth troops based in Egypt. Fought in the narrow strip of land between the Mediterranean coast and the vast Sahara Desert, defined by supply shortages and the hostile climate, the momentum swung back and forth. First, one side would get the advantage, swiftly breaking through their enemy's defenses and making huge territorial gains, but exhausting their resources and overextending their supply lines. The enemy, pushed back to fortified positions within easy reach of resupply, would soon return, rested, reinvigorated, and ready. Taking the advantage, they would swiftly break through their enemy's defenses and make huge territorial gains, while exhausting their resources and overextending their supply lines. Their enemy, pushed back to fortified positions within easy reach of resupply, would soon return, rested, reinvigorated, and ready, taking the advantage they would... and so on. So it is now October 1942, and for more than a year the Axis army has had the advantage, and they have pushed the British, Commonwealth, and Free French forces into Egypt itself. The Axis thrust was blunted three months ago in a stalemate at the First Battle of El Alamein. Now the two armies have dug in across from each other. The space between them is full of mines and barbed wire, but sooner or later, they must fight. El Alamein was an ideal place for the retreating allies to make their stand. The town occupies a narrow strip of traversable land on the Egyptian coast, just 30 miles wide. But now that the Axis advance had ground to a halt and the Allies were preparing for a counteroffensive, that narrow corridor worked against them. With such a small front and so little natural cover in the desert, it was easy for Axis lookouts and reconnaissance planes to monitor practically the whole Allied position. Any massing of troops for an attack would be visible long before it was ready, giving the Axis plenty of time to mass forces and counter it. And with only 30 miles front, there were really only two places to attack. In the south, through rough terrain, or in the north, along the only road in the region. The Allies, commanded by General Montgomery, decided to attack along the northern route. But to succeed, they had to convince the enemy that the blow would fall in the south. Enter Operation Bertram, physical deception on a massive and masterful scale, planned by a World War I veteran turned filmmaker turned camouflage expert. Step 1. The tanks, hundreds of them were parked in two staging areas far behind the British lines and one near the south end of the line. Meanwhile, ordinary supply trucks were parked at a depot in the north. Large amounts of junk, old crates, empty petrol cans, and so on, were discarded in heaps in the north as well. An engineering company began construction of a water pipeline from the north to the south at a slow but steady pace. All of this was done in the open, and it was left there for weeks, so that enemy spotters could see it and become accustomed to it. It was obvious that the Allies would not be ready to attack anytime soon. Meanwhile, far behind the lines and in absolute secrecy, the British were manufacturing vast numbers of dummies, dummy tanks, dummy artillery, dummy trucks, the works. Step 2. During the nights, supplies were gathered in the north, but not in supply depots as was customary. Rather, they were distributed, hidden in the shadows along the sides of trenches, stashed inside those piles of junk from Step 1 and stacked in boxes that were arranged to look, from the air and with the aid of some camouflage netting, like a truck. Meanwhile, matching stacks of dummy supplies were assembled, out in the open, in the proper fashion, in the south. Finally, a week before the attack, 
dummy artillery was massed in the south, and the pipeline was still a long way away from being ready. Step three, the moment of truth, two days before the attack. Now, besides building all of those hundreds of mock tanks, the camouflers had also constructed what they called sun shields. These were light frameworks of wood or steel and stretched canvas that fit over the top of a tank, a bit like the outer parts of a Gelgoog fit over a Nemo. These made the tanks look, from as close as 200 meters, just like the real trucks that had been parked in the north. During the night, the real tanks raced from their forming up points to the staging area in the north. There they replaced the real trucks that the Axis spotters were used to seeing, and back at their forming up points, the real tanks were replaced with dummies. Artillery pieces and their motorized limbers, too, were fitted with sunshields to look like trucks, and they also joined the tanks in the north. Real tanks were left in the south, where they could be easily seen, in order to help maintain the illusion. And the pipeline was still at least a week away from reaching the south. Finally, the day of the attack. The Axis forces are not arrayed properly to repel an attack from the north, and Axis officers would later admit that at that moment they believed the Allies were still between a few days and a few weeks away from being ready to attack at all. The guns in the north threw off their sunshields and opened fire all along the Axis line. The tanks roared to life and began their push against the surprised Germans. Now even with the advantage of surprise both in location and in timing, the Second Battle of El Alamein proved a grinding 15-day-long battle of attrition. But it was the battle that broke the Axis powers in Africa, and it was one of the great turning points of the war. Yet it could just as easily have turned the other way. And perhaps without Bertram and all of those tanks wearing truck cosplay, it might have. (laughs) Camille may be resistant to Rekawa volunteering herself for such unusual and dangerous tasks but there is a long and storied history of women spies. I'm going to focus on World War II and Cold War era spies, since that is some of the most accessible information, but in eras as diverse as 16th century Japan, the English Civil War, and the American Revolutionary and Civil Wars, women have been active and frequently leading members of the espionage community. There are many different types of spycraft. Sexpionage is the most titillating, and so the one we hear about most frequently. Sexpionage? Yes, that is actually what it's called. Uh, It is the use of seduction, romance, intimacy, sexual activity, or the possibility of sexual activity to distract, to elicit confidences, to turn someone to the other side, and so on. It's an acknowledged part of espionage tactics. No one pretends that it's not happening anymore. (laughs) Everybody openly acknowledges that that can be part of the job. A Washington Post article from 1987 discusses just how frequently sexpionage works and that, quote, most Westerners who have spent any length of time in Moscow have their favorite tale of an attempted seduction by a KGB swallow or raven. Swallow and raven? So of spies who specialize in seducing enemy targets, the women are called swallows and the men are called ravens. Ah. caw <laughs> But obviously this is not the only kind of espionage work that women were doing. They also served as analysts, code breakers, saboteurs, couriers, and radio operators. 
those last two being among the most dangerous jobs someone could have. They were leaders of resistance networks and groups of guerrilla fighters, and they worked undercover as secretaries, translators, and newspaper reporters. Of 39 women that the Special Operations Executive, which is one of the UK's spy agencies, sent to occupied France, a third of them were discovered and killed. Oof. So Camille's concern for Rekawa's safety is not overblown in that regard. There's been plenty of theorizing over time about not just the role that women should play in spycraft, uh, but what makes an ideal woman spy and whether or not there are specific characteristics that make women more suitable as spies. Several of the sources that I read for this piece had really incredible quotes about this from other people who were working at spy agencies. Uh, in World War II, an MI5 officer speculated that, quote, one thing women spies could do was seduce men to extract information, but that not just any woman could manage this, only one who was not markedly oversexed or undersexed. <laughs> As the article puts it, like the proverbial porridge, a female agent must be neither too hot nor too cold. <laughs> uh, if a lady was, quote, undersexed, she would lack the charisma needed to woo her target. But if she suffers from an overdose of sex... That is how the guy put it in the memo, in the official MI5 memo. Uh, her boss would find her terrifying. Well, it's the classic sex kitten trope, right? That a woman who is very sexually aggressive actually really intimidates men. We can't handle these women who are too good at their jobs. They intimidate us. What is required, this agent wrote, is a clever woman who can use her personal attractions wisely. Another European intelligence officer advised American intelligence officials that, quote, an agent should be calm, unostentatious, and reticent. Women are emotional, vain, and loquacious. They fall in love easily and without discrimination. They are impatient with the strict requirements of security measures. They withstand hardship poorly. As reasons, really? As reasons why women shouldn't be made into spies. And yet later, a British captain in the Special Operations Executive was quoted to have said that women's character made them particularly well-suited to work behind enemy lines, specifically that women were secretive, accustomed to isolation, possessed of a cool and lonely courage. Some officers thought that women had greater empathy and caretaking instincts, which equipped them to recruit and support ordinary citizens as agents. Women were also considered good couriers, a high-risk role, because they could rely on ingratiation and seeming a naivete as tools in tight spots. Is it starting to sound like Rekawa yet? <laughs> Maybe a little bit, including that nurturing part. I just got lost. I must have been holding the handle wrong. I'm such a silly flibberty gibbet. And despite the incredible acts of bravery and heroism by women during World War II, despite their competence, experience, and success, these agencies were reluctant to officially put them in charge. And after the war quote, didn't know what to do with them. In 1953, the CIA convened a panel to discuss attitudes toward women in the agency and found that women were considered to be more emotional, less objective, and insufficiently aggressive. I find it really difficult to believe that a panel assembled in the 1950s would have felt that way about women in the workplace. Even as recently as 1991, an internal study at the CIA found widespread gender discrimination in work assignments and promotions, 
and that in order to be accepted by their colleagues, women at the CIA were forced to, to tolerate widespread sexual harassment. Does this sound like Rekawa yet? <sighs> it gets worse, if you can believe it. Women who complained about the systematic denial of promotion opportunities were instructed to have a psychological evaluation. I believe it, but I don't want to. Returning to beneficial characteristics, women are considered more patient, more interested in contextualizing information, and better at multitasking. When it comes to social and interpersonal skills, they're seen as better at building relationships, playing a role, and suppressing their ego in order to achieve an objective. Oh, just things that we socialize young women to do, like I was, constantly. I was going to get into that in a, in a minute after I get through a couple more beneficial characteristics. Okay. Reading people, figuring out their motivations and vulnerabilities, seems to come more readily to women being trained as spies. More important than having the physical ability to fight your way out of a bad situation is the ability to assess the danger of a situation and act accordingly before fighting becomes necessary. So, a thing women are largely trained to do from a very young age. A lot of the work of operations officers, which is what spies are called now, is the handling of foreign assets or sources. A task made easier and more effective by being nurturing and a good listener. Characteristics that most women are taught to develop from a young age and that many men in espionage training have to be taught. And there are frequent situational advantages. For instance, in occupied France, the population at large was mostly women. Many of the men had been sent to labor camps, and women operatives were better able to blend in. I want to circle back to the bit about beneficial characteristics really quick to clarify. I don't think any of this stuff is actually, like, inborn in women. I think this is a lot more nurture than nature. There are certain skills and certain characteristics that we teach girls to have, that we train girls to have, and certain characteristics that we train boys to have generally as a society. And it just so happens that many of the ones that we develop in girls are well-suited to a job where you have to pretend to be somebody else and build trusting relationships. <laughs> uh, and keep your head on a swivel for any signs of danger. Right. And so when we say these are things that society teaches girls and young women to do and that it teaches boys and young men to do something completely different and much less helpful for spying, that represents a almost incalculable investment in like time and resources that we're not even aware of in teaching young people how to do these different roles. And I hope it comes across in my delivery, like this is because of a sexist system. <laughs> it should not be so gendered what sort of traits we teach people to develop, but because it is, because that's the world we live in, uh, we do tend to wind up with more women with these traits than men with these traits. Obviously, it's not 100% exclusive. There have been very many male spies who were very effective, but we hear about them plenty, while many of the women's stories have been sort of glossed over or lost to history. And that, that sexism can become an advantage in itself out in the field. On top of these sort of gendered skills being advantageous, other more negative sexist attitudes can be turned to beneficial purpose by women spies. For instance, the perception of women as non-threatening and lacking competence means they are frequently never suspected. I'm not going to get into very many stories of specific women in this piece, but please, please, please do yourself a favor and check the show notes. I will link to a few articles that recount 
some of these incredible stories, but I am going to tell my favorite person who was never suspected story. One of the articles I will link to is from a website called Modern Rogue, uh, where they write about the five most women in spy history. And my favorite is the spy who drove Jefferson Davis crazy. Her name was Mary Bowser, and she was born into slavery in Richmond, Virginia. When the plantation owner died, however, his daughter was an abolitionist, and she freed all the slaves. Bowser stayed on to receive an education. She learned to read and write. She moved to Liberia and did missionary work and came back to Virginia, where she met and married another freed slave. However, just four days after she married, the Civil War began. She became part of an extensive spy ring. She got herself a job as a servant in Jefferson Davis's household. Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States of America. She had to pretend she was illiterate because uh, her education was completely illegal at the time. But since Davis assumed that no black people could read, he just left documents everywhere. Important military documents lying around willy-nilly all the time. So she'd just read them and write down what she learned, as well as taking notes on secret discussions that she overheard, and pass that information to one of her handlers. After a little while, note passing got too risky, so she came up with this elaborate code in how she hung out the laundry. Women have done this a lot, actually. This is a very common way for women to pass codes is to do it with laundry. That's brilliant. It's It's, like, how can you get mad? I'm just I'm just like I'm just a housewife doing the laundry. What? It's just a shirts and trouser based form of semaphore, really. It would also hide information inside of eggshells and in the false bottoms of shoes. Ulysses S. Grant himself said that this information was the most valuable he received during the entire war. And the best part is this whole situation drove Jefferson Davis crazy. He never figured out who the leak was. Wow. So good. And there's dozens of stories just like this of of really incredible people. Um, There was a famous woman spy, American woman in the French resistance who had a peg leg and like climbed over the Pyrenees. I don't even know how many times with her peg leg. (laughs) Was it a hollow peg leg? Did she hide documents inside? Probably. It also had a nickname. I want to say it was like Nigel or (laughs) I don't remember exactly what the nickname was, but she named it. Apparently on one of her runs, she radioed in and told them that like Nigel was giving her some trouble. And a new guy who didn't know who Nigel was was like, oh, then you should take him out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, women who were who were captured, who didn't give up information under torture, uh, who gave up lives of luxury to do incredibly dangerous things. There's one socialite who made her husband buy her an ambulance because there weren't enough ambulances and she wanted to be an ambulance driver. The hobbies of eccentric rich people. Yeah. One of the other stories that I love is this woman who had photographic memory and was working as a translator or a translator and secretary and was kind of cute. And like the Nazis just told her about missile development and planes and she didn't understand any of it. But she remembered she remembered diagrams. She remembered everything they told her. And she was like, yeah, I would just show the slightest bit of interest. And they were so eager to explain everything to her. (laughs) Oh, one more story. There was a a Filipino woman, Josefina Guerrero, who did just like a crazy amount of spying. 
because she had leprosy. And so nobody ever wanted to inspect her. Nobody ever wanted to frisk her. Nobody ever wow. like wanted to be near her. Mm-hmm. So she could hide stuff. She could go more or less where she wanted. She could, it was all of this stuff that she could do because she had a leprosy. But she also knew she was an outcast, even to the people she was helping. But she wound up being brought to the U.S. later and cured and eventually given citizenship. Cool. Yeah. She led a really incredible, interesting life. Just story after story after story of really incredible spy work by women. So please check the show notes. Please read those articles. They're very fun. Next time on episode 2.30, The Gambler, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 29 and a disgraceful operation. Quattro is a deadbeat dad. Dangar. Katz does something good for a change. Camille likes Fa when she's stern, motherly, and naked. An out-of-court settlement. Way more penis than would be in an American kids show. Paper Planes by MIA. And this war crime is just the thing to de-escalate the conflict. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Rekawa's room isn't a metaphor, she just likes plants. Stop trying to read too much into Gundam on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The music used in the AU Orientation Seminar was Gemini, instrumental version by Josh Woodward. And our guest voice was Adam Black. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. We will roll with it. It is what we are preparing to roll with. Sorry to do this to you. When he's all like, Fa shouldn't go. Requa. Sorry. When he's all like, Requa shouldn't go. Gender mixed bag. Soroko says, the Titans are basically Zeon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In case anyone was wondering. It was just so tangential to the point of the episode that yeah. it didn't seem worth mentioning it.
rather serious person. Like, I can be silly and I can joke, but on the main, I'm, I'm a rather serious, mm-hmm. sincere person. That was my thing beeping, sorry. It's reminding me I have to write a blog post today. Should I believe that or leave it? It's not a bad word. I know, but it, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it just might be funnier to believe it. Well, if you believe it, then people will think I said or or <laughs> one of the other euphemistic yep. terms. Yep. The humorous fake quote in the article is, Nazis are idiots and horn dogs? Hold my beer. <laughs> Should we call it there? That's probably a good ending. Yeah.